Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, the Bastille Day special for 2023. This episode is something a little different and was created for a unique reason. David Crowther, the host of the immensely popular The History of England podcast, offered me the amazing opportunity to create an episode of Grey History for his show. And with an offer like that, how could I possibly say no? As a result, this special episode unpacks an intersection between British history and the French Revolution. Specifically, it explores British reactions to the revolution across the Channel. In particular, we'll be examining the works of Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, and unpacking not only how they shaped the British debate at the time, but also how they still influence Western politics today. We're going to be covering a lot of interesting territory, and I guarantee at a minimum you'll walk away with some pretty fascinating pub trivia facts. Now, as previously mentioned, this episode was created for the History of England podcast. So if you hear me recommending the show or covering very basic facts about the revolution, that's the reason why. As this is not a main narrative episode, I'll save the introductions of the newest patrons until episode 57, but a warm welcome to the people who are now amongst the most awesome individuals on the planet. This show is only possible thanks to the amazing community supporting Grey History, and I can't thank you enough for making episodes like this possible. If you haven't seen it yet, there is a behind-the-scenes video for this episode that has been uploaded exclusively for patrons of the show, explaining how this episode came to be and also some potential bonus episodes that we might do in the future. As a reminder, if you're enjoying Grey History, if you want to keep enjoying Grey History, then I need your help. For as little as half a cup of coffee, for as little as $2 per main narrative episode, you can keep Grey History running and enjoy hours of bonus episodes, episode extras, and behind-the-scenes videos in return for your support. You'll also receive an ad-free version of the show and the warm fuzzy feelings of helping a small independent podcaster stay on the air. So Google Grey History Patreon and join the community today. I need your support and we both know that you need more Grey History. Anyway, that's enough from me, so let's get into it. Welcome to Grey History. British reactions to the French Revolution.
They say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, and in the summer of 1789, the British were most certainly flattered. Across the Channel, the French had engaged in the most fascinating experiment. Facing imminent bankruptcy, the absolutist regime of King Louis XVI had succumbed to public pressure. For the first time in nearly 200 years, a parliament-like body named the Estates General was summoned, and it would deliberate on proposals to avoid financial catastrophe. Violent unrest had plagued the country for months, as the government had resisted this occurrence with all its might. It had done so because it feared an even greater calamity than bankruptcy, constitutional government. Their fears were well-founded. The commoners of the Estates General, the so-called Third Estate, soon went rogue. Unilaterally declaring themselves the National Assembly, the deputies vowed to never disband until France had been granted a new constitution. A failed military crackdown by royalist troops helped trigger the famous storming of the Bastille, and in its aftermath, it was clear that the revolution was here to stay. In Britain, these events were generally received with interest and excitement. The British cherished their constitutional monarchy, and it appeared that the French had finally realised the wisdom of the British system. A group of French deputies were even labelled the English bloc as they desired reforms which mirrored the constitutional arrangements of Great Britain. Perhaps there would soon be a French House of Commons or a French House of Lords. Perhaps the ancient rivals could even find lasting peace now that their means of government could be reconciled. Thus, in the summer of 1789, both the British public and its political class were fascinated by events in France, and most viewed these developments rather positively. To some, the French were a source of inspiration, proposing a new social contract built on Enlightenment principles and ideals. To others, the French were simply catching up with where Britain had been for more than a century after the Glorious Revolution of 1688. What harm could come from reforms which had allowed Britain to prosper? Surely only good could come from Britain's lead. It was just a small minority of voices which raised concerns that revolutionary France posed a threat to Great Britain. After all, the idea that France would be a revolutionary republic within a few years, one with armies launching a crusade for universal liberty, well, that scenario was simply unfathomable. By and large, the British viewed events across the Channel in a positive light. Some saw inspiration, others saw imitation, and only a few saw any cause for concern. Yet, attention spans in the 18th century weren't any greater than they are today. As the French stopped storming Azkaban lookalikes and started the dry business of actually legislating, British interests understandably waned. Domestic issues returned to the fore, as did other international developments equally worthy of attention. Spain and Britain were almost driven to war in 1790 thanks to conflicting interests centred on Vancouver Island 
just off the coast of modern-day Canada. Likewise, British Prime Minister Pitt had grave concerns over recent Russian advances near the Crimean Peninsula. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The so-called Ochakov affair, like the Nuka crisis with Spain, emerged as alternative focal points for both the British government and, to varying extents, the public interest at large. With no shortage of foreign concerns, by late 1790, the French Revolution had largely been relegated as a matter of public curiosity. Without attention-grabbing events such as the fall of the Bastille or the infamous October Days, the British reaction to the revolution was generally one of disinterest. Sure, the political junkies remained hooked to the spice, but for most, the affairs of France were hardly first-grade news. After all, it's always interesting reading a story about a French queen being chased through the palace by an armed mob who just brutally murdered her guards and shredded her mattress with knives and sabres. But that doesn't happen every day. It's less interesting to hear about a debate over the technical points of constitutional law, something that was far more common. However, all of this indifference was about to change. In November 1790, fascination with the French Revolution came roaring back, and it did so for the most unlikeliest of reasons. Up until now, the British public had largely been reactive to events across the Channel. The French would do something spectacular, and only then the British would take interest. But in late 1790, this dynamic changed. And it changed because of one man. Introducing the most unlikeliest of protagonists, the Anglo-Irish statesman Edmund Burke. Aged 60 by the time of the revolution, Burke had already been a member of Parliament for more than two decades. In his years of public service, Burke had previously staked out what some would have considered to have been quite radical views. Notably, Burke had expressed sympathy for the American colonists in the preceding decades. Furthermore, he was also a forceful proponent of Catholic emancipation, one of the most contentious and divisive issues of the time. Given these stances, and given his association with the more constitutionalist Whigs in Parliament, Burke's actions in November 1790 were all the more astonishing. Those actions were the release of a political pamphlet titled Reflections on the Revolution in France. The consequences of this document are still impacting your life today. Perhaps more accurately titled A Blistering Assault on the Revolution in France, Burke proceeded to systematically rebuke every aspect of the endeavour across the Channel. And to be clear, I do mean every aspect. Burke denounced the French deputies, disparaged their policies, and perhaps most importantly, decried the very principles which were underpinning their revolutionary reforms. In every way possible, Burke condemned the revolution. As he did so, he not only galvanised British public interest, but he also unknowingly shaped our own politics in the 21st century. However, in order to understand the importance of Burke's work, as well as 
why he had just unleashed such a thorough renunciation of the revolution, we must quickly recap what the French had been up to. Now, before I go any further, I would like to say that it took roughly 20 episodes to get to this point in the French Revolution, so you are going to be getting the too long didn't read summary. But if any of this sounds interesting to you, do check out Grey History, the French Revolution. The following events are really some of the most intriguing and consequential of modern history. So, across the channel, the revolutionaries had been busily remaking every aspect of French society. After abolishing feudalism and compiling a rather lengthy declaration of rights, the deputies sought to systematise and rationalise everything. In the resulting reforms, the so-called privileged orders were in the crosshairs. Within just one year, the monarchy, the aristocracy and the Catholic Church were completely remade. In relation to the monarchy, King Louis XVI had been transformed from an absolute monarch to an absolute figurehead. Denied a permanent veto and unable to ever call fresh elections, the king's prerogatives were significantly curtailed. Furthermore, Louis had been forcibly relocated from Versailles to Paris, and once in the capital, it was fast becoming clear that he was not the city's king, but rather its captive. He would eventually try to escape the revolution in the dramatic flight to Varennes, but that was still some months away. However, lest Louis feel too sorry for himself, he could compare his plight to that of his former nobility. The key word being former. In June 1790, the National Assembly abolished the French aristocracy. Months earlier, the deputies had debated whether to follow Britain's example and establish a House of Lords. Back then, the deputies had decided against any upper chamber, and since then, they decided there would be no lords at all. Asserting that such distinctions were not conducive to the general good, centuries of traditions and customs were instantaneously erased. In order to ensure that nobility was relegated to history, the deputies banned the display of coat of arms, traditional uniforms, and even the use of titles. Despite stylizing themselves as the warrior class, the French aristocrats had been defeated by common lawyers, armed only with pens and paper. But there was more to do. With such mighty weapons, the revolutionaries proceeded to take on an even higher power, the Catholic Church. Owning perhaps 10% of the nation's property, the new National Assembly forcibly seized church lands. It did so in the hope that this property could be used to help finance the government, averting the bankruptcy crisis which had enabled the French Revolution in the first place. However, nationalising church property was just the start. The deputies soon abolished monasteries and nunneries, and subsequently they turned their attention to systematically remaking the entirety of the French church. In the reforms which followed, bishoprics were simplified, some churches were closed, and the power of the Pope was significantly curtailed. 
In my personal favourite reform of 1790, newly empowered French voters would henceforth be given the right to elect their priests and bishops. And to be clear, I do mean French voters. The right was not enjoyed exclusively by Catholics alone. As a result, Jews, Muslims, atheists, and perhaps worst of all, Protestants could now elect Catholic clergy. Without getting into the details, you can imagine that none of these reforms were considered particularly kosher by the pious faithful. Eventually, these reforms, and the more radical ones which followed, would result in a religious-inspired civil war. They would herald a full-scale de-Christianization campaign, priest hunts, arbitrary executions, and what some historians refer to as a genocide against French Catholics. But that's getting way ahead of ourselves, and by late 1790, the schism between the revolution and the church was only just beginning. Again, if any of that piques your interest, do check out Grey History, the French Revolution. That's Grey with an E. Yet, the revolutionaries had good reason for all these reforms. From their perspective, the deputies were eliminating the relics of feudalism and the superstitious principles which had enabled tyranny and abuse. Rejecting prior doctrines such as the king's divine right to rule, the revolutionaries were clearing the decks and starting anew. Specifically, they sought to replace the old regime with a new social contract underpinned by natural law, and in particular, natural rights. Now, if you're not up to date on historic theories of natural rights, I don't blame you. But the crash course is as follows. Throughout the 18th century, many philosophers championed the idea that there were these things called natural rights. Challenging the unrestrained power of monarchs, Enlightenment thinkers asserted that natural law and natural rights were a superior way in which to establish and administer a government. For some, these natural rights were granted by God or a higher power, while for others, these rights were self-evident and could be deduced by philosophy alone. Critically, these rights were considered to be both universal and inalienable. But what did this actually mean? Well, their universality meant that they applied to all individuals in every corner of the world. Natural rights were not something limited to the French alone, but rather common to all peoples, regardless of creed or culture. Furthermore, as these universal rights were derived from nature itself, they did not originate from a legal charter or a contract. Such rights could not be granted by a king, a priest, or anyone else who claimed authority through an oversized tiara. This brings us to the second characteristic of natural rights, their inalienability. An individual could not be alienated from their universal rights. In other words, a person was always entitled to natural rights by the laws of nature, and thus no legitimate society could deprive or divest these rights. Seeking to establish a free and rejuvenated society on such principles, 
the French revolutionaries decreed the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. In this document, they declared that men were born free and equal in rights, and that the goal of any political association was the conservation of these rights. These rights included liberty, property, safety, and resistance against oppression. Furthermore, the Declaration made clear that powers of government existed solely for the advantage of those governed. Henceforth, these natural rights, enshrined in the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, would act as a North Star for the revolutionaries' actions. And this North Star is why the old regime had been so thoroughly upturned. How could an aristocracy exist if all men were born equal in rights? How could an aristocracy perpetuate when it failed to enhance the public interest? Why would the king be empowered to prevent the will of the people through a veto or fresh elections when sovereignty resides in the whole nation and not in the crown? These were just some of the many ways that the principles of the future clashed with the frameworks of the past. Back across the channel, Burke was dismayed at what he saw. To Burke, the French had fundamentally squandered their chance to establish a strong and stable society, one which would protect French liberties from both a tyrannical king as well as a tyrannical populace. Instead of following the clearly exceptional example set by the British and its constitutional monarchy, the French had rejected their own ancient institutions as they foolishly pursued a social contract built upon natural rights. Attacking the deputies as inexperienced enthusiasts, Burke ridiculed the idea that a prosperous and free society could be fabricated using such theoretical principles. For Burke, government was a practical science, not a theoretical one. As a result, if one wanted to build a stable constitutional settlement, one should look at what was already working. In other words, one had to incorporate the time-tested institutions, traditions and norms which had already brought prosperity to previous generations. As Burke himself claimed, It is with infinite caution that any man ought to venture upon pulling down an edifice which has answered in any tolerable degree for ages the common purposes of society, or on building it up again without having models and patterns of approved utility before his eyes. From Burke's perspective, the revolutionaries had committed a terrible folly. They had pulled down the time-tested institutions which had governed France for centuries, and they had replaced them with unproven and theoretical alternatives. France had previously thrived with the monarchy, the nobility, and the church, and thus these institutions had proven their worth. Sure, they may have needed reforms, but they did not need eradication. Yet, instead of reform, the French had chosen revolution. Instead of using these valuable and legitimate institutions, 
the French had cast their whole history aside and adopted alternatives which Burke claimed had no credibility. Burke asked what assurances the deputies had that their new frameworks would actually work. What proof did they possess that these alternatives, derived from the laws of nature, were superior when it came to protecting the people's liberties and preventing injustice? With government being a practical science, the deputies had failed to adopt a practical approach. From Burke's perspective, the revolutionaries had ignored the institutions and traditions with a proven track record of success. As such, their efforts were likely to end in failure. For Burke, this was no trivial matter. The consequences of such an approach were grave. The revolution had already violated multiple so-called inalienable rights, such as the rights of property, when it forcibly nationalised church lands. Burke anticipated that this would be just the start of a long series of injustices. The parliamentarian warned that when ancient opinions and rules of life were taken away, the loss could not possibly be estimated, but the logical endpoint was clear. Burke predicted that only violence could enforce the laws of such a society, one that was cut loose from its heritage and artificially fabricated on theoretical rights. He specifically used the word terror as he warned of a bleak future, one characterised by murder, confiscations, tyranny and cruelty. Furthermore, Burke claimed, quite accurately, that the revolution's result would be military dictatorship, which, given Napoleon's rise in future years, was undeniably on the money. However, the thing that was most troubling for Burke was that such an outcome was not restricted to France alone. It is no coincidence that Burke's work was titled Reflections on the Revolution in France, because there could be revolutions elsewhere. Burke's publication was actually triggered by the advocacy for reforms from British progressives. Associating with the Whigs in Parliament, it was members of his own faction which praised the progress they saw across the Channel. The most radical Whigs and like-minded reformists outside of Parliament drew connections between the French Revolution of 1789 and Britain's Glorious Revolution of 1688. These progressives were inspired by the same Enlightenment principles as the French and pushed for similar reforms and the foundation of a new social contract built upon natural rights. After all, if Paris could build a just society based on natural rights, why couldn't London? Natural rights were universal, and so they belonged to every Englishman, just as they belonged to every Frenchman. Burke was dismayed at this idea, and thus his work was an attempt to rebuke these principles before they took root at home. He feared that such calls jeopardised Britain's monarchy, aristocracy and parliament, and as a result, the liberties that Britain enjoyed. Soon, Burke's publication became a rallying point to those who resisted large-scale reforms to these institutions, and that was his intent. Fearing that the coming terrors of France 
could consume his own nation, Burke went on the offensive, denouncing the revolution abroad and championing the status quo at home. Describing the British constitution as an invaluable treasure, Burke implored his countrymen to see the folly of the French and rally behind both the king and parliament. But if a government shouldn't be underpinned by natural rights, what was the alternative? According to Burke, it was the wisdom of previous generations which should be consulted when considering a society's governing structures. In the British context, this wisdom of one's ancestors meant maintaining the institutions of the king, the aristocracy, and of course, parliament. Burke argued that the existing British political arrangements had proved their worth because they had endured for centuries. It didn't matter that they weren't derived from the laws of nature. What mattered is that they had secured liberty for previous generations and thus had stood the test of time. To be clear, Burke never argued that change was undesirable. He was not a reactionary who desired no reform. He was, after all, a champion of Catholic emancipation. But Burke argued that change should be gradual, taking into account the traditions, customs and norms which had previously allowed society to prosper. Put simply, and to paraphrase Burke himself, government was not made in virtue of natural rights, but was instead made by human wisdom, including the wisdom of one's ancestors. As such, Burke advocated so-called inherited rights, the liberties passed down from one generation to the next. These rights were not universal, but unique to specific societies, as they were inherited from one's forebears. In the British context, these inherited rights included things like the existence of regular parliaments, the election of parliamentarians in free elections, and laws and taxation only being legal when approved by Parliament. Furthermore, it included things like the rights of subjects to petition the king, and the rights of specific cities, universities and boroughs to send representatives to Parliament. These were the so-called ancient rights of Englishmen, and it was these inherited rights which English society should be built upon. Every society would have its own unique set of inherited rights, which had been developed organically over time, and these were preferable to the abstract and metaphysical principles embraced by the French. This is where the French had failed, and the British had succeeded. In uprooting every aspect of France's previous social contract, in attacking the monarchy, the aristocracy, and the Catholic Church, Burke argued that the French had rejected the wisdom of their ancestors. They had rejected the very institutions and norms which had allowed society to succeed. As such, the French Revolution would fail, and no prosperous nation could ever have its foundations built upon theoretical rights. In contrast, the best approach was the British model, as it embraced the traditions and customs of one's forebears. Despite the upheavals in British history, the nation had wisely maintained the institutions and traditions which had made the nation great. 
understandably, Burke's assertions upset the apple cart. But before we move on to Burke's detractors and introduce Thomas Paine, I do want to take a slight detour and explain why this is still relevant today. Burke's work remains highly influential, especially amongst conservatives in the democratic world. After all, any political arguments favouring slow, gradual change, one which emphasises approaches we know to have worked in the past, well, those arguments are all heavily relying on Burke. If you think about it, the current arguments in favour of retaining key British institutions, including both the monarchy and the House of Lords, they still have their foundations in Burke's views. Ask a monarchist in the UK why they support the Crown, and you're probably going to hear replies which reference tradition, history, its custodianship of previous success, and the perceived benefits of the existing system, which they don't want to change in haste. This is Burke talking. Likewise, the same arguments can be found in Commonwealth nations. In 1999, Australia held a referendum on whether or not it should become a republic with its own head of state. Many argued that the existing system had provided stability, protected the liberty of citizens, and should not be overhauled as it connected Australia's present generations with its past. These justifications all touched on Burke's points. They were not grounded in principles such as natural rights, but rather in arguments that the monarchy had brought previous success and that one should maintain time-tested institutions. But Burke's importance is not limited to the Commonwealth alone. In the United States, Burke is no less impactful, with his writings and ideas being used to champion all sorts of conservative policies. In short, by advocating that political action should be grounded in experience rather than theory, Burke continues to shape our politics well into the 21st century. But with a legacy like that, well, you can be sure that there is no shortage of individuals looking to poke holes in Burke's thesis. Now, as much as I would love to frolic in the details of historiography, we do not have time to get into all the nooks and crannies regarding Burke's reflections. Given the sheer volume of work produced on the man considered to be one of the founding fathers of conservatism, exploring every detail would take a whole series of podcasts. Instead, we're going to focus on one rabbit hole I find particularly interesting. And as an enthusiast of English history, I suspect you will too. We're going to unpack what is considered one of the most obvious flaws of Burke's views, one which might already have you scratching your head, and one relating to the history of England. Three notable themes can be picked up from Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. Firstly, Burke advocated so-called inherited rights, liberties which had supposedly been secured by one's ancestors and passed down the generations. It was these rights, combined with gradual reforms, which should govern a prosperous society. Secondly, 
Burke forcefully denounced the violence and excesses of the French Revolution, decrying the treatment of the royal family and the aristocracy more broadly. Finally, Burke attacked the all-encompassing reforms of the French, reforms which represented a complete break with the past. Given these three points, how did Burke square such opposition to the French Revolution with England's less than pacifist and rather turbulent history? After all, in 1688, the Glorious Revolution had famously deposed King James II and imported the Dutch prince, William of Orange. How did putting James on a boat to France reconcile with Burke's gradual change? Surely the king gradually losing sight of the White Cliffs of Dover was still a little too fast. Going even further back, what about the English Civil Wars, or for that matter, the Baron Wars, which provided the much mythologised Magna Carta? Surely Burke's denunciation of the violent upheavals in France was incompatible with the defence of England's less than tranquil history. Well, here is where Burke the politician moonlights as Burke the gymnast. Although not enough for his critics, Burke did offer a way to reconcile these views. According to Burke, the glorious revolution of 1688 was not really a revolution. Instead, it was more of a restoration. Specifically, the events of 1688 were not about proclaiming new rights derived from theoretical principles. Instead, they were about restoring existing rights which had been inherited from previous generations. Rights which had been jeopardised by the sinister King James II. Thus, the English were reasserting their inherited liberties, not codifying new rights which had their origin in the laws of nature. Likewise, even the Magna Carta was viewed as a process of restoration. Burke lent on the arguments of the 17th century Chief Justice Edward Cook, who himself was a chief player in reasserting the rights of Englishmen through the Petition of Right in 1628. Cook and Burke argued that the 13th century document was not codifying new liberties, but rather reasserting rights which already existed for Englishmen. It was argued that such rights predated the Norman conquest of 1066, and Burke explicitly states that the Magna Carta was nothing more than a reaffirmance of the still more ancient standing law of the kingdom. Modern-day historians generally have a field day debunking such claims, but Burke, Cook, and a significant number of their respective contemporaries took them at face value. For Burke, the rights and liberties enjoyed by the English had existed for centuries. They had been won by their ancestors, and they had been continually protected and reasserted when they were infringed upon. They were, put simply, the ancient rights of Englishmen. To prove this, Burke notes that important constitutional documents explicitly stated that they were codifying, not creating, these long-held rights. For example, in the aftermath of the Glorious Revolution, the Bill of Rights does not seek to justify itself by abstract philosophical principles. 
Instead, it states plainly that the rites it contains are true, ancient, and undoubtable. For Burke, this is proof enough that these ancient rites of Englishmen exist, although he fails to clearly identify just when these rites were obtained. Nevertheless, he has no doubt that they were, and thus, like other forms of property, they had since been inherited by subsequent generations. In this way, the English hadn't conducted violent revolutions or revolts to assert new natural rights. Instead, events like the Glorious Revolution of 1688 protected, through extraordinary means, the ancient liberties which the people already possessed. Through this argument, and through conveniently ignoring more or less the entirety of the English civil wars, Burke could comfortably condemn the French revolutionaries and their violent actions while simultaneously defend the less-than-pacifist revolutions of English history. Now, we could spend hours unpacking various ways unsympathetic historians have picked this argument to pieces. But we're not. Instead, I would point out that while such criticism is valid, Burke was himself, first and foremost, a politician, not a philosopher. Expecting a flawless theory from someone in the thick of political debate is perhaps setting the bar a little too high. More importantly, however, we don't actually need to unpack the opinions of historians to hear an effective rebuke of Burke, because we can actually hear from one of his most famous contemporaries. In the immediate aftermath of the publication of Reflections on the Revolution in France, Burke created a firestorm. His publication sold like wildfire, with several thousand copies sold in the first few weeks, rivaling the numbers of even modern-day bestsellers. For the first 12 months, a new edition was published almost monthly, as Burke's work fast became the cornerstone of conservative and even counter-revolutionary politics. In developments that were almost unbelievable, Burke single-handedly catapulted the French Revolution back onto the British public agenda. Anyone who liked to think of themselves as an intellect was fast talking about Burke's publication, not just in London, not just in Britain, but soon across the European world. Within three months of its release, a French translation had sold more than 10,000 copies, with King Louis XVI reading the work back to back. American revolutionaries soon took interest as well. Thomas Jefferson, for example, who had helped to draft a version of the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, a version not ultimately used by the revolutionaries, was dismayed at what he read. Burke was a man who had previously expressed sympathies with the American colonists, but now he seemed to portray the cause of liberty in France. Yet it would not be Jefferson who took up the gauntlet against Burke, but rather another American founding father named Thomas Paine. Born in Norfolk in 1737, the Anglo-American political theorist was already well-known prior to the French Revolution. The author of Common Sense, 
the best-selling political pamphlet of the American Revolution, Paine had a reputation for defending natural rights, democratic principles, and Republican government. Paine also had a history of attacking what he perceived to be the despotism of European societies, describing both monarchy and aristocracy as institutions which perpetuated tyranny. Given these previous positions, Paine was an unsurprisingly firm supporter of the developments in Paris. He was thus outraged by Burke's all-encompassing denunciation of the revolution, and he decided to reply in kind. In early 1791, Paine published the first part of his book, Rights of Man. The battle was on. Rights of Man, published in two parts across 1791 and 1792, had a variety of objectives. Three noteworthy points were as follows. Firstly, Rights of Man offered a stinging rebuke of Burke and his arguments against the French Revolution. According to Paine, Burke had delivered a deeply flawed analysis on the events in France and an illogical defence of the situation in Britain. Secondly, Rights of Man outlined Paine's advocacy for constitutional and political reforms within British society, reforms which shared much in common with those across the Channel and were nothing short of nightmarish to Burke and his associates. Finally, Paine used his book to make the case for much broader reforms to society, most notably on the issues of taxation and welfare. If we dive deeper into the first point, Paine's work offered an impassioned defence of the French Revolution and a complete rebuke of Burke's prior criticisms. Paine shared the revolutionary's view that a society should be constructed upon universal and inalienable rights. Consequently, the French were correct in framing their constitution with constant consideration as to how new laws and institutions would protect and uphold these rights. This position was in direct contrast to the views articulated by Burke, who Paine proceeded to denounce. Paine savaged Burke's idea that a social contract could be built upon so-called inherited rights, and that society should be an organic framework passed on from one generation to the next. Going further, Paine disputed the very idea that Burke's inherited rights even existed at all. For Paine, rights must be universal and inalienable. They had to derive from nature, because if they weren't derived from the laws of nature, then they weren't truly rights. This is where Paine believed Burke was wrong, and that the British had been led astray. In the past, English monarchs had considered themselves the sovereign power, and dispensed grants and concessions as they saw fit. Burke's so-called inherited rights were really just forms of privileges which had been granted to the nation by previous monarchs. After all, the House of Commons did not originate as a matter of right, but rather as a concession from the Crown. Consequently, Burke's so-called inherited rights were not universal, nor were they inalienable. To put it simply, they were not even rights. Instead, 
they were really just mislabeled privileges, grants and other forms of licenses which had their origins in treaties and concessions. Having established that Burke's inherited rights were not really rights at all, such privileges were not an acceptable foundation for the government of a free and just society. Only natural rights, rights which were universal and inalienable, rights which derived from the laws of nature and applied to all societies and all governments, could be considered the rational basis in which to fabricate a society. In short, Burke and Paine possessed fundamentally incompatible views. The two men not only disagreed on how to apply rights to the formation of a government, but they also disagreed on the very essence of rights themselves. But Paine's work was more than just a rebuttal of Burke. The international revolutionary used rights of man to lay out his advocacy for substantial reforms in Britain. What ensued was promotion of exactly the kind of policies Burke had hoped to discredit in his original pamphlet. Paine argued that as Britain had no written constitution, it in effect had no constitution at all. A constitution had to be written, it had to be tangible, and since Britain had no such constitution, the people should create one. Whereas Burke urged respect for the current constitutional arrangements, Paine was essentially arguing that no valid constitution even existed. As such, Paine championed the formation of a new constitutional convention, one that would see citizens of the nation draft a written constitution for the whole country. This idea was naturally inspired by the recent American Constitutional Convention, and if you think that such a proposition deeply disturbed the government in London, you would be right. This is just one of the many reasons that Paine was advised to leave England prior to the publication of his book. To digress for a moment, some listeners, especially non-British listeners, may be surprised to know that the United Kingdom still has no written constitution to this day. You cannot simply go and read the Constitution of the United Kingdom, like you can for the United States or Australia, or for that matter, 99% of countries across the world. Intriguingly, the UK is not alone, with both Israel and New Zealand also belonging to the very small club which lacks formalised written constitutions. Anyway, I have digressed. Paine's demands for a written constitution were all the more troubling when combined with the rest of his book. Paine denounced the English nobility, describing the institution of aristocracy as a monster. Advocating for its abolition, Paine claimed that the nature and character of aristocracy went against every law of nature, and that the French were right in destroying their own nobility. Thankfully for our friend Thomas, he has no way of knowing that the aristocracy still exists in Britain, that the House of Lords is as alive as ever, and that its members include political appointees who are so young that they would be ineligible for running as a United States Senator. To digress for a second time in as many minutes, 
The House of Lords is currently the second largest legislative chamber in the world, second only to the highly democratic National People's Congress of China. Like I said, it's probably good for Payne's mental health that the committed revolutionary does not know what he's missing. Returning to the rights of man, Payne's criticisms of the nobility didn't stop at the aristocracy. Always an American revolutionary at heart, Payne had no small beef with the British monarchy. Like the French revolutionaries, Payne argued that sovereignty resided in the nation, not in the person of the king. He denounced the romantic and barbarous distinction of kings and subjects and went on to champion the cause of republicanism more broadly. In another rebuke of Burke, Payne claimed that the republican system of government was preferable to that of monarchy because republics embraced the whole nation. As such, the British should not just reform the composition of the monarchy, but also the composition of parliament. With Britain's history as a long-standing constitutional democracy, it may come as a surprise to know that late 18th century Britain wasn't particularly democratic in the modern sense of the word. Payne attacked the inequalities within Parliament, which he perceived to be illogical, unjust, and contrary to the values of a democratic society. An example of one of his objections was the unequal distribution of seats in Parliament. For Payne, it was ridiculous that Cornwall should have the same representation in Parliament as all of Scotland. Likewise, how could major urban centres be denied representation while some electorates, often dubbed rotten boroughs, were controlled by just a few dozen voters. From Payne's perspective, such injustice and irrationality could never exist in a society built upon reason and philosophy. Of course, all of these proposed reforms created a stir. But before we move on, it is worth briefly noting Payne's rather radical advocacy for significant social reforms. Well ahead of his time, Payne used rights of man to outline considerable changes to taxation and welfare. A widespread education system, relief for the poor, and an old aged pension, all paid for by higher taxes on the wealthy, were just some of the extremely radical ideas which Payne presented. While this advocacy doesn't concern the focus of this podcast right now, it is noteworthy that many future revolutionaries would champion these ideas throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Like Burke, Payne's ideas are still influencing our politics to this day. Taken altogether, and one can see that Payne's Rights of Man was just as electrifying as Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. Offering a complete rebuttal of Burke, Payne trashed the conservative ideas which championed the existing British system. In their place, Payne upheld the French, not as a warning, but as an example worthy of emulation. Payne had used his reply to call for the abolition of the aristocracy, democratic reforms to parliament, and a complete rethink of everything from taxation to welfare. In short, he called for a new constitutional arrangement and lobbied for a new national convention to codify a written constitution, 
he was, in effect, not only defending the revolution in Paris, but seeking to implement another in London. Like Burke's work, Paine's has no shortage of detractors, with contemporaries and historians eager to critique a range of aspects of his rebuttal. But such criticisms didn't dampen public interest. Dwarfing Burke's considerable volume of sales, tens of thousands of copies of Rights of Man were sold across Great Britain. Exact figures are debated, but in the first two years after its publication, perhaps 300,000 copies were sold when you combined both volumes of the book. 300,000. An extraordinary figure. Furthermore, political clubs and societies sprung up across Britain advocating Paine's ideas and seeking to translate them into practice. Government spies became alarmed as his seditious attacks against the authorities seemed to be taking root. Throughout England and Scotland, Paine's words echoed in increasingly radical societies, clubs and associations. The government had a problem. Taken together with Burke's success, the two men essentially ended up framing the British public debate surrounding the French Revolution. Their works dominated public discourse in the years which followed, much to the annoyance of many who found themselves agreeing with only aspects of their conclusions or rationale. It's only a slight exaggeration to say that the broader public debate was henceforth coloured by whether you stood with Burke's reflections or Paine's rights of man. But, as alluded to earlier, if there was a winner in this debate, it would appear to be Burke. Britain is still a monarchy. It still has an aristocracy. It still retains the House of Lords, and no written constitution has been created. This begs the question, why? Why did Britain experience no similar revolution in the 1790s? And why did Paine's call for a constitutional convention never materialise, given his supposed influence? Well, to unpack that properly would require a whole episode in itself, but it is worth noting that England's entry into the Revolutionary War in 1793 changed the domestic situation dramatically. As discussed recently as we covered Britain's road to war, some historians argue that members of Pitt's government deliberately sought conflict with the then Republican France as war could be used as an excuse to stymie calls for political reform. Indeed, a constitutional convention was held in Scotland, but this movement, along with similar actions in England, was soon suppressed by the government. Eventually, London would introduce new laws to smother domestic political dissent. Labelled as Pitt's terror by some historians and contemporaries, the repressive measures invited direct comparison to the French reign of terror. Habeas corpus was suspended, facilitating the detention of radicals without charges or a trial. Going further, the government pursued political societies, publications and public gatherings, in part by greatly expanding the definition of treason. The cumulative effect of these measures, in addition to the famed treason trials of 1794, strangled the nascent constitutional movement. 
Again, we have recently explored some of this in episode 54, It's Treason Then, which opens up with a deep dive into British motivations for entering the Revolutionary War. So even if you're not looking for a full French Revolution series, you might want to check out the start of episode 54 as a committed History of England enthusiast. To wrap up this episode, I thought it would be worth noting how Burke and Payne ended their careers. For all their differences, the two men had thematically similar endings. Retiring from Parliament in 1794, Burke had succeeded in his goal of turning the British public against the French Revolution. Unfortunately for Burke, he had also succeeded in turning many of his colleagues against himself. His renunciation of the events in Paris, along with domestic reforms with democratic underpinnings, had sown deep divisions with many of the Whigs he had once associated with. Although some made attempts at reconciliation towards the end, notably Charles James Fox, these often failed to materialise. Furthermore, although he eventually came to be considered as a founding father of conservatism, the Tories hardly embraced him with open arms at the time. Burke's advocacy for Catholic emancipation meant that he was viewed with suspicion, as was his liberal positions on Ireland, India and the American Revolution. Indeed, as historian James Sack notes, the Tory press continued to be quite hostile towards Burke for several decades. To an extent, Burke was shunned by both camps of Parliament although some close friends and associates continued to defend him as one of the greatest statesmen of the age. It wasn't for several decades until the multitudes agreed. With time, his legacy would be more eagerly and selectively adopted as future generations embraced Burke in debates. Initially, this related to those arguments surrounding Irish home rule, and in the 20th century in particular, American conservatives would come to cherish the politician-turned-philosopher. Thus, Burke died relatively isolated in 1797, years before Napoleon's rise to power and roughly two decades before a lasting peace would be established on the continent. It is with some irony that he died in 1797 as the French Republican armies scored success after success and Burke himself knew all too well that his fears of a Republican Britain could soon become a reality. For his part, Thomas Paine fared even worse. After the second volume of Rights of Man, the British government decided to crack down on Paine's dangerous rhetoric. Going after both Paine and his publishers, the Crown charged Paine with seditious libel. This could have been disastrous but Payne had actually fled to France prior to the commencement of his trial. As a result, he was tried and convicted in abstentia. In Paris, the revolutionary writer took up a pretty fascinating gig. Or so it seemed. Payne had been elected to the new French National Convention. That body declared France a republic in September 1792 and set about crafting a new constitution for the now Republican nation. Finally, an opportunity presented itself for Paine to put his ideas into practice. But 
Payne's experience in France was not all sunshine and rainbows. He unsuccessfully argued in favour of sparing the life of King Louis XVI, having urged the convention to exile the former monarch rather than execute him in January 1793. Worse still, Payne was a foreigner and he became associated with the wrong faction. With ties to the more moderate Girondins, Payne eventually found himself imprisoned during the infamous Reign of Terror. He was lucky to survive, and after his release from prison, he returned to the convention and continued his work as a deputy. After Napoleon's ascendancy, Payne moved to America. Although considered a founding father, his reception was not a welcome one. Having supported the French Revolution, criticised Washington, and advocated for a range of ideas which managed to annoy just about everyone in town, Payne, even more so than Burke, found himself in the political wilderness. That is where he remained. He died an isolated figure, but one that continues to inspire to this day. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of Grey History for the History of England podcast. Episodes like this are only possible thanks to the support of the community. So thank you so much to everyone supporting the podcast in some way, shape or form. If you've enjoyed this episode of Grey History, why not listen to more? There's half a dozen bonus episodes available right now for members of the Grey History community. For as little as $2 per regular episode, you can help support history that isn't black and white and enjoy all the perks that come with it. Just Google Grey History Patreon or follow the links in the show notes or on the website. As always, thank you for listening. Stay safe. Please share the show with friends and family and have a great day. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.